My name is Ted Cruz, and my pronouns are kiss my ass. My pronouns are Reagan and Trump. My pronouns are let's go Brandon. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our people, our American citizens have dreams too. And one of those dreams is that they should be able to have a family cookout with hamburger buns. Up next, faith over fascism. The militant left in America are the modern-day version of book burners. Do the wackos believe in science? Why, no, of course they don't. There's no such thing as misinformation. Do you want to comment on kind of the canceling of doctors? Socialist cheat. They yeah. stole the 2020 election. I had tasseled loafers on. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe did this. Joe Biden is not a nice man. Joe Biden is a senile old pervert who's pulling on par with monkey pots. Ay caramba! When I said that I'm a Christian nationalist, I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. We'll all be uh, given a free hobo to defecate in our front yard. Who's going to tell Kamala? Will Elizabeth Warren go on the warpath? We're having the trial of the machines. Nice name, right? There's nothing worse than when you start to develop feelings for someone or you're on a date and you realize they're a Democrat. Lock her up! has a nice ring to it. So yeah, hey everybody, Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast, and it is Monday, and I can't say I watched all of CPAC. I don't quite hate myself, I guess, enough to want to go down that road, but I did watch, first off, Victor Orban's speech. I watched the majority of that. That was a real heart warmer, um, and as you can see in this clip here, a lot of good productive substance has really been coming out of CPAC and coming out of the MAGA and America First nationalism. Just some really good ideas, you know. Um, I like Ted Cruz. You know, I, I wonder what I wonder what 2016 Ted Cruz would think of him. Though it is kind of clever. Hi, I'm Ted Cruz, and my pronouns are kiss my ass. I, I, I think that has a clever ring to it. But anyways, I mean, these people are just jokes. Like, I, I hate to say it, but... You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that most Americans are Christian nationalists. I don't think that's particularly true. I don't have any numbers directly in front of me, but that just doesn't, doesn't check out. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I like how Mike Lindell, Mike Pillow, the pillow guy, whatever you want to call him, I like how he also is doing basically a class action lawsuit against machines. And he could just say, I'm suing the voting machines, but speaking isn't really his best skill. So he always says, I'm doing a class action lawsuit on machines. Very clever of him. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, looking good in this one. Lock Her Up is back. You know, just uh, really, really quite a weekend. So I, I wanted to share that clip, uh, the Lincoln Project, who I, I have mixed feelings on, but they, I think, did a really good job kind of compiling this because yeah, there's just wackos. So that was that was one of the days, and now I want to play a little bit more from the next day, day three, because I think that's where the best stuff came out. Let's listen. USA! 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 All of the progress that we have made comes either directly or indirectly from Donald Trump's presidency. My pronouns are Trump one. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being systematically destroyed. When he came down that escalator and won our hearts. We should abolish the Department of Education. It's a Trump heel, but it's a purse. I look at Parlay, 
or parlor. <laughs> it's inside joke. Nobody in this room is a domestic terrorist. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all domestic terrorists. We will not participate in your death cult. You have high priests now. We mainly win because we're on the side of God. I trust that God is in control. Do you? Give God glory! The proper name for George Soros is little Georgie. COVID, as they say, COVID. Such a nice name. I wonder where they got it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Wiping Up the Poo. Those ultra mega out there! Please be careful of the monkey pox. Try to keep your orgies down. Being a woke-topian in America today, you start defunding the FBI, the DOJ. I come to you from the once great state of California. Conservatives are great at asking people for money. We drove a stake through the heart of the McCain machine. Alex Jones has been right pretty much most of the time. I couldn't care less what the childless Manhattan liberals and the MSNBC think of me, and you shouldn't either. And uh, yeah, so that was nice, right? Uh, really, just really... It sounds like everyone there is just doing really well mentally. And I am not trying to stigmatize mental health or anything, but there's just a lot of people that don't seem like they're doing too well. I also like, obviously, um, there wasn't a video here that I put up, but in the video, Glenn Beck is actually wearing a cowboy hat, has a bolo tie, all this stuff. Like, it's just funny how all these people are just trying so hard to have this kind of rugged cowboy look. And a lot of them did not have this like two years ago. I mean, J.D. Vance is trying. Obviously, Ted Cruz is basically always like, hold my beer. How much crazier can I look? And it's, it's just kind of wild, you know? Um, Matt Gates's hair seems to get crazier with the amount of crazy shit he's saying. But, yeah, you know, there's just... That's the farm team, guys. That's the farm team for the GOP. Christian nationalism, election deniers, and just crazies. So, not heartwarming. Not heartwarming at all. And I didn't put Victor Orban's speech up here. But I watched the majority of it, and this is a guy who said a lot of lies. He claims that, you know, Hungary's leading the way in anti-immigration, uh, but is also a beacon for democracy. As you guys know, and I'm not going to repeat it now, at, but I've talked about it a lot, Hungary is not a healthy democracy. He talked about how he's proud to be anti-immigrant. The Hungarian people are proud, and he, and he botched a Davy Crockett joke, for example, and, you know, just kind of echoed how the elites and the liberals and the European Union are all enemies. And I think the worst part of it is how much the crowd loved him and how much the crowd was just clapping. And I'm assuming that if you're going to CPAC, maybe you're not like the, I don't know, the highest IQ. I mean, just based on the things people were clapping for there. But it was it was too bad to see how, how they've just embraced him. It was ugly. Um... It's just, you know, what, two weeks after he says he doesn't like the idea of mixed race in Hungary, he ends up doing this. And I was talking to my dad last night, and he said he was reading an article that said, like, 80% of Hungarians have mixed, uh, mixed descent from other parts of Europe and Asia and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's all a lie. It's all a kind of neo-fascist lie. But anyways, I'm going to move on from CPAC. Got you guys those clips. And just troubling, um, Trump's speech... Makes it definitely sound like he is running, so we have that to look forward to as well. But anyways, moving on, I, I want to start by talking about a fairly troubling report from The Atlantic. Well, let me backtrack. 
We're going to talk about the, um, some troubling reports about the child separation policy. And then we're going to talk about the forward party. And we're also going to talk about insulin being price caps on insulin being taken out of the new uh, Inflation Reduction Act that just passed. So I want to start with a fairly troubling report from The Atlantic. And it shows us that intentional cruelty and radical deterrence were the plans of the child separation policies under President Trump back in 2017 through 2019, I want to say. And basically, this article looks at how it wasn't an accident and that these policies were extreme on purpose. And it also shows that this could happen again if Trump was president again. So this article is pretty interesting. I read through it yesterday. It's actually, from what I've gathered, the longest um, article ever written by The Atlantic. It's about 30,000 words. It's even broken up into chapters. Took me, took me several hours to read. I was kind of going through it slowly, but interesting article. It's called An American Catastrophe by Caitlin Dickerson. And in a nutshell, it basically details the dark side of the Trump administration's policies on the southern border. I will obviously not go into all the details because we would have to do like a three-hour Joe Rogan-style podcast for it. But I just want to highlight the main points and kind of why it matters. So getting into it, Dickerson really put some work into this. And this article is basically, from what I've gathered, the culmination of hundreds of interviews and it's big because these interviews are with people who have not really spoken about the issue since, and they're all people that were inside the administration and directly involved in these separation policies. For example, you have Kirsten Nielsen, John Kelly, and Scott Lloyd, as well as others working in different areas of the policy field. And just a refresher, uh, Kirsten Nielsen was the Secretary of Homeland Security during the period where these child separations occurred. She resigned kind of when all the chaos was coming to light and the media was just ridiculing the administration. John Kelly was Trump's chief of staff until 2019. I actually always forget that he lasted that long. Um, not a bad guy, not my favorite, just kind of a, eh. Scott Lloyd was the director of the Office of Re Refugee Resettlement for the government, and he was quite involved. But so anyways, Dickerson discusses how the separation policies at the southern border were not out of incompetence. She argues the opposite. She writes here in quotes, It's been said of other Trump-era projects that the administration's incompetence mitigated its malevolence. Here, the opposite happened. Instead, a flagrant failure to prepare meant that courts, detention centers, and children's shelters became dangerous, dangerously overwhelmed, that parents and children were lost to each other, sometimes many states apart, that four years later, some families are still separated, and that many of the have not been united and have suffered in, in, in irreparable harm. Sorry, I can't speak today. And Dickerson also makes it clear that people like Stephen Miller, as we know, who is really a hawk on this, and Scott Lloyd, who I mentioned earlier, they wanted to separate children from their parents as basically a scare tactic and, and as a means of deterrence. And basically it was intentional and they wanted this to happen. It wasn't just an accident. And interestingly enough, apparently Miller and others in the administration lied to anyone who opposed these policies. One example is Kirsten Nielsen, and according to documents and interviews, she opposed separation and for months basically was standing in the path of doing it. Um, she's not a perfect person, probably should have spoke up more, but obviously she knew this wasn't right. And as the lone, she was basically the lone person in the room voicing objections and I guess the problem was that Nielsen and other uh, senior staff were told and incorrectly believed that agents had done this in the past. That basically, so, so basically she was convinced by Trump officials that in the past other presidents had commonly separated families. 
which I'm sure has happened on small occasions, but she was basically told that this is normal, don't worry about it, and yeah, not, not particularly great. The more troubling part about this report is also that state and local officials in places like Texas had no idea how to handle this, were given no warning, and expressed concerns to deaf ears about the logistics of separating children from their parents. And it seems like the Trump administration didn't not care, but also just wanted this to happen. And also going back to the federal government, the DHS Secretary Nielsen, who I mentioned earlier, faced intense pressure from bureaucratic leadership, and she finally did sign off on this uh, zero-tolerance policy. I think that maybe the most troubling part, though, was that Dickerson keeps emphasizing that it was not only these higher-up appointed officials that Trump chose, but it was also bureaucrats and agency workers who clearly did not want to speak out due to fear of criticism or whatnot, or just supporting it, or just felt like they were part of the system. And so there were people throughout these institutions, throughout these agencies that were fine with doing it, and there was no oversight. And... She writes here in quotes, these separations were also endorsed and enabled by dozens of members of the government's middle and upper management, cabinet secretaries, commissioners, chiefs, and deputies who for various reasons didn't voice concern even when they should have seen catastrophic looming, who trusted the system to stop the worst from happening, who reasoned that it would not be strategic to speak up in an administration where being labeled as a rhino or a squish could end their career. And to me, this is the most troubling part because it shows the culture of the Trump administration and how a campaign that runs on these culture war issues and grievance can really bring that into the government on every level. And it's just interesting, you know, because we talked about that Section F or Schedule F, sorry, where, you know, they, were, they would try to fire like 30 percent of the, of the basically the bureaucratic state. And th this is what would happen is they put in people like this who obviously don't care about human rights and like cruelty. And, you know, for time's sake, I won't really get into more details here, but there are just pages upon pages about the traumatic uh, experiences had, you know, experienced by families, the, the pure and intentional cruelty of Trump officials, and how many, many families are still separated. And it's just really troubling. And, and I guess, you know, at the end of this, it's like if Trump were to return to office, this cruelty would probably be back, right? It's not like he's gotten nicer since he left office. It seems like the opposite. And he has ideas on how to replace officials with loyalists. And the Atlantic's investigation makes it clear that if Donald Trump or someone who shares his views on immigration were to be elected, restarting separations would be high on the agenda. And look, I think there's a conversation to be had about the asylum process I've never been a huge proponent of increasing immigration. Um, I think our asylum process needs reform. But this is just not about immigration. It's about cruelty and a violation of human rights. And it really doesn't accomplish anything. It's not like he ended immigration or did anything productive, right? So it's, it's just really irritating. And it just, again, shows me how these people were just, are just not equipped to run such a big country. Moving on, I want to give an update on the chaos related to the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I first wanted to start by saying that Bill Maher had a great take on this to start uh, his episode, which was last Friday during his monologue. He discussed the achievements Biden was making were actually quite good. He noted that Biden had achieved several major accomplishments throughout the week while having COVID, including the consensus from all 50 Democrats over the reconciliation package. Then he went on to ponder what Kirsten Cinema really wants. And he mentioned here in quotes, and I think it's pretty good, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona. You familiar with her? All right. Well, she joined up. 
good to see the Democrats can be bipartisan with themselves. <laughs> and I, I thought that was pretty great. Because it does feel like that, doesn't it? It feels like the Democrats are uh, dividing amongst themselves over everything. They're fighting internally. It's kind of like just a big family war all between each other. But anyways, Kirsten Cinema obviously signs on to the bill, but they cut out, <laughs> cut out some of the better things to hold uh, private firms accountable. And so she's joined on, but unfortunately, it looks like the cap price on insulin has been cut from the bill. So remember last week how I mentioned that the Senate parliamentarian would need to approve this, uh, this bill under the process known as reconciliation for Democrats to avoid the filibuster? Well, apparently parts of the bill did not comply with the rules that allow them to advance the bill during, like, through the budget reconciliation process. So instead, they had to put up the part on insulin up for a vote in the Senate. So basically, the rest of it, from what I understand, got passed and was approved by the, uh, the, the parliamentarian. But the insulin section was not. And so they decided to actually hold a vote in the Senate, I think, to put people on the record. That's what I'm definitely assuming. And unfortunately, it did not go well. The Washington Post writes here in quotes, Republican lawmakers on Sunday successfully stripped a $35 price cap on the cost of insulin for many patients from the ambitious legislative package Democrats are moving through Congress this weekend invoking arcane Senate rules to jettison the measure. Some Republicans did support the price cap in the 57 to 43 vote for the measure, but not enough joined Democrats in support of it to meet the threshold for passage. Now, of course, <laughs> it's actually really interesting, some of, the, some of the Republicans that voted for it. You had, like, Susan Collins, who usually does this stuff. You had uh, Bill Cassidy, who makes sense. But also you had Josh Hawley in there. Um, that one sort of surprised me. And, and of course, you know, if you look at some of the numbers, some of the states with the highest need for insulin are a lot of these red states. So it's always irritating when you see the Republicans vote against the interests of the people of their state. But again, because they're so good at going on Fox News and spinning this, I'm sure they'll have an argument to, as to why they did this. But moving on, it's interesting because the Republicans did leave the portion that applies to Medicare patients untouched. So basically, if you're old enough to get Medicare, there are price caps already on insulin and they will be put further into place. But anyone who's not getting Medicare, they are not going to get something $35 or cheaper. And I can't help but think that Republicans support it for Medicare patients due to the age of their voting base, but uh, I could be wrong. So, you know, unfortunately, insulin can now be extremely expensive for the average American. I read in a Yale study that one in five Americans pay significantly more than 35 a month, sometimes closer to 100. And some 7 million Americans require insulin daily, so that's a problem. Also, 14% of those insulin users are spending more than 40% of their income after food and housing costs on the medicine. That just shouldn't happen in a rich country. You know, I'm not some socialist progressive, but I think that's insane. And... Again, another irritating failure of our politics to solve the failures of our healthcare system, right? Our politics are failing and our healthcare system's failing, and we can't solve the failures with politics, it seems like. It really doesn't seem like we can. We just don't get anything done. We, we don't have strong leadership. We're divided. It's, it, it's a problem. And, you know, I, I'm not surprised at all. This does not surprise me whatsoever. The, pharma, the pharmaceutical industries are highly involved in our political system. And the Republicans showed us that they think that's more important. Now, I should mention, just to be fair, though, that apparently the, the Republicans did offer their own scaled-back version of this insulin cap, and Democrats, of course, rejected it. 
So it does take two to tango here. But I would also argue that this is just not a good issue for Republicans. Now, the Democrats could have, like, fired the parliamentarian. They didn't. Um, I, think, I think that would probably bring more chaos than good. But they also put Republicans on the record. And honestly, it may be a political win because lowering the price of drugs is popular with voters. And I really wonder, wonder how this hurts Republicans now. Because I really wonder what they have going for them. They are against helping veterans who were in burn pits. They're against gun reform. They're against abortion. They're against making drugs more accessible to Americans. And they could be going against gay marriage. Oh, yeah, and they like Viktor Orban and downplay January 6th. Uh, so I saw a great tweet today that said something like, Today, 43 Republicans voted to keep insulin prices high. Tomorrow, they will ask you to be outraged that gas is still $5 instead of 3 <laughs> It's It's true. The things they're outraged on, then they say they're pro-life, blah, blah, blah. I, I just don't really see pro-life here, to be honest. But let me know if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. So moving on, the last thing I want to talk about is third parties. And I want to start with the forward party, which is kind of a party that's come into the spotlight recently. And I've seen a lot of just mainly disingenuous takes on the forward party. And it's kind of a divisive idea having a third party. And, you know, a lot of people are worried third parties can be spoilers, especially when elections are so close and our country is so divided. Do you want to risk it? And I want to break down some of the myths of it, the, for, the forward party being a spoiler and give a background on just candidates goals and all that stuff so to start the forward party is led by i believe it's mainly three people who are david jolly who's a former republican congressman from florida who i actually like some of his ideas he's also an executive chairman of the serve america movement definitely not a trump guy i've i've heard him do some podcasts before sorry we got a loud vehicle out there I can't catch a break with those. Um, but anyways, I, I like David Jolly. I've heard him on some podcasts talking about how much of a jerk Ron DeSantis is, so I can get behind that. Um, Christine Todd Whitman is, a number, is another person, and she is the former Republican governor of New Jersey and kind of co-founder of the Renew America movement, which I actually don't know what that is. And then there's also Andrew Yang, who's probably the most known of these three. He's the former you know, Democratic presidential candidate, and he's the co-chair of the Forward Party, big guy on UBI. Um, ran for mayor of New York and did not do too well, but he's still out there. And honestly, like my initial thoughts would be this is kind of a never Trumper centrist Democrat vibe. That's kind of what this party gives me. But I'll get back to that later in more detail. Um, I think the best way to start with uh, going over this party is by reviewing this op-ed that these three put out in the Washington Post. And the op-ed basically goes over things I've talked about on the podcast and things that are all true. It discusses how Americans have lost faith in our government and extremism is growing. It also provides numbers that we have discussed. About 8 in 10 Americans say the country is in the wrong direction. Almost 30 million Americans think political violence against the other side is justified. Always lovely when you see that number. About <laughs> um, Yang, Jolly, and Whitman also argue that the United States badly needs a new political party one that reflects the moderate common sense majority. Now, we've been hearing this for years. It's not been going too well. But anyways, you may be asking, Alex, don't third parties always fail? Well, the third party writes about their reasons why they would not fail. I'm not completely sold, but they do talk about it. They discuss how most parties fail because they are too narrow in scope or cannot uh, appeal to a lot of Americans. And I can understand in the past, like there's some parties like the Green Party or the Rent is Too Damn High Party or the progressive party or the socialist party of america like there's there's parties that are just never going to appeal to enough people to actually do well in an election 
But the op-ed in this case writes in quotes, roughly half of Americans consider themselves independents and two thirds say a new party is needed. Surprisingly, a majority of Democrats and Republicans say they want another party too. So the three, Yang, Jolly, and Whitman discuss how, um, how a new party would stake out the space in between. Again, a moderate party. In the, you know, I, yeah. then, the, then the article goes on to discuss how, I guess, some of their positions, which I'm a little eh on. It's like, okay, most Americans don't want to ban guns, but they also want gun reform. Most Americans think the rich should pay more taxes, but they also are fine with how, like allowing billionaires to exist. Most Americans believe in climate change, but also don't want to quickly upend everyone's way of life to fix it. Like, these are all just kind of centrist milquetoast positions that a lot of, like, centrist Democrats already are doing. So I, I don't really know if it's a third option. It just kind of sounds like the center of each party, to be honest. Like, that's where I'm kind of confused if this is really a third party or just kind of like a movement that's trying to force the two parties to be more centrist. I, I don't really know, but... What I will say is there's one thing I like in the op-ed, and it's kind of a key part of the Forward Party's uh, platform. And it's looking at systemic changes in our elections that may help with polarization. Now, this is stuff I can get behind. The op-ed writes here in quotes, We will passionately advocate electoral changes, such as ranked choice voting, which I love, and open primaries for the end of gerrymandering and for the nationwide protection of voting rights and a push to make voting remarkably easier for anyone and incredibly secure for everyone. Now, easy and secure, <laughs> we're, we're, we're seeing that play out right now, and they seem to be in opposition to one another. I'm not really sure how you get those two to go together, but that's a whole other conversation. I also wish that they maybe mentioned compulsory voting, but I think that's getting a little too ahead. The Republicans right now would never agree with that. Uh, but anyways, I think elections and voting rights and maybe ranked choice voting are important. Studies have shown that ranked choice voting, for example, can help lower extremism and help more moderate candidates get support because the vote is less about party allegiance and you can have multiple candidates running and it's an open election. So you can have like a centrist maybe vote their first choice being a Democrat and their second choice being a Republican, right? And so it helps like from the craziest candidate doing well because the example I always think about is, is Alaska. Lisa Murkowski is likely going to hold her Senate seat this time around even though Trump and the Republicans have really turned on her. Now, like, for example, Liz Cheney is very likely to lose her primary next, I think it's next week, because basically um, she's, she's being kicked out. And, but in the case of Alaska, ranked choice voting's actually allowed Murkowski to still do well with moderates and some Democrats. And so it's just, it's just a much better system, in my opinion. Anyways, starting with my critiques on the forward party, I don't really think... Or I, I, let me rephrase, I don't really see this as a third way. Like, and I've already kind of said that. This just feels like the same values of kind of a Clinton-era Democrat. The platform is not really anything new or really existent. It just seems like we're going to find the center of each issue. And I don't know if I actually buy that there's enough people that would go for that, unless it's like a huge candidate with a lot of name recognition. It also just seems to be less radical, which is good. But again, I don't know if there's a huge appetite in certain places. I also think that it may not really get voters all hot and excited to go out and vote for them, right? I, I hate our two-party system, and I think it's anti-democratic. You know, the founders warned about factions and the creation of political parties, and I do think that our system is susceptible to authoritarianism without certain electoral reform. But that being said, I'm convinced that at least at the moment, 
change and reform must happen from within the two parties because they're the ones that are right now dominating elections and they're the ones that are getting people elected. Yes, we should adapt ranked choice voting and pass nationwide voting laws, but do we need a third party to do it? I just I just feel like it's it's I feel like these guys are like the forward party are addressing correct issues, for example, they're addressing a lot of Americans feel disenfranchised and kept out of the voting system and angry at the extremism, but they're also not recognizing if they would be the right option because I think a lot of people want dramatic change and it doesn't sound like the forward party would actually bring dramatic change. Now, I should at least add that probably the reason why people are mainly hesitant towards third parties is the fact that they can be spoilers and they have been in the past. I always think of Ross Perot being a great example of that. Probably wouldn't. Yeah, he, he was just a problem. But anyways, or Ralph Nader as well. Um, but for example, let's imagine in this hypothetical scenario that Andrew Yang runs as third party against Trump in 2024 and say Pete Buttigieg is the Democrat. Yang has, you know, honestly, pretty similar views to Buttigieg. But maybe he's a little more popular with independents and could get maybe some centrist on or center right people. Say Yang takes like 10% of the people that would vote for Pete. If the election is close, like it was in 2020, that could actually be what Trump needs to win, right? I'm not saying it would exactly happen that way, but it could be enough. And so that's the big criticism. But I, I don't think the forward party is doing a good job of actually explaining that that's not what they're trying to do. It seems like the forward party is aware of this issue and has a good answer to it. And I think it's actually more of the genius of where the forward party could be useful. I know I've criticized them in some sense, but I think this actually could be good. So going back to that op-ed, they actually make it clear that the party has no interest in presidential elections. They discuss how they are focused on state races and local races. They write in quotes here, there are more than 500,000 elected positions in the United States. But a recent study found more than 70% of races on ballots in 2020 were unopposed or uncontested. A tiny sliver of U.S. congressional seats will have close races this November. The two major parties have shut out competition, and America is suffering as a result. End quotes. And basically, the forward party wants to put these moderate candidates into races where they could maybe make an impact or maybe kick out someone more extreme. And I actually like that and don't think it's crazy. I think they should make it more clear that they're not planning on trying to run a presidential candidate. They're just trying to get involved in elections to make the country maybe less radical, to make the, the whole local and state issues less radical. Now, again, I, I am still concerned that some people really don't want moderation. I just feel like the fact that Americans fear the other side or believe political violence can be justified tells me that like moderation might not be the key. Also, I see those cheering, screaming crowds at CPAC, and they don't really make me feel great about moderation either. But I think third parties have had kind of a mixed history, and it's, it's easy just to say, oh, they're spoilers, and they never do well. But if you look through the history of third parties, there have been some, some successful ones in like, the, excuse me, in like the 1910s, the 1920s, 1930s. But usually what happens is the two-party system usually starts to absorb their ideas and try to take over their policies and kind of kick them out, threaten them out, and demagogue them out. And that seems to be the case here. But again, I don't know if the, the forward party is really going to be effective just because they seem so much like just the centrism on both sides already that we have. Again, I could be wrong. And hopefully they do maybe 
try to unseat some wackos in the states and appeal to moderate voters. But then again, you have to ask yourself, if there's a wacko who keeps getting elected, maybe it's because the people like it. Like, do you really think a centrist could go in and beat Marjorie Taylor Greene in her district or a centrist could go in and beat Lauren Boebert? I mean, you have to wonder, is it a supply issue or a demand issue? And I'm, I'm still on the side that it's a demand issue. And if it is a demand issue, then a moderate party is not going to win in those places. I'm sorry. So anyways, um, yeah, check out some CPAC videos. Uh, check out Viktor Orban's speech. Uh, check out some forward party people. Uh, I could be wrong, but it just doesn't seem like there's going to be a huge appetite for that, even if most Americans are sick of our two-party system. Have a great day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify. I probably missed some, but you know, they all are out there. And I'll be back Wednesday. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Adios. Thank you.